Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. She has been called education's public enemy number one. Who is she? Well, she is simply a housewife, the mother of three sons, and a grandmother, too. And though she's never gone to college when Norma Gabler speaks, the education establishment of the state of Texas listens. Every child should not have to sit in the classroom and read profanity and gutter language. In 1980, Mel and Norma's textbook reviews caught the attention of CBS's 60 Minutes. She and her husband Mel have embarked on a kind of crusade, warning parents all across America to watch out for what's in their children's textbooks. Your children are a captive audience. They don't have the right to get up and walk out. Your television, you can turn the dial, or you can turn it off. You don't turn off a classroom. In this ago, segment, they're displaying all of their folksy charm. Norma is making sandwiches, and she's speaking to groups of parents and rooms with really incredible patterned wallpaper. There's this one shot of them and their modest Longview house, surrounded by papers, making their case for objecting to textbooks on national television. We do not want imposed on the students just our viewpoint, but we feel it's totally unfair to have our viewpoint totally censored when at least half of the United States might be considered favorable to our viewpoint. Remember, these are two retirees with no prior political experience, no background in education, and not that much money. And yet by the 1980s, the entire textbook industry knew Mel and Norma Gabler. Now, just how important are the Gablers? They probably have more influence on the use of textbooks in this country than any other two people. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Grace Lynch, and this is Teaching Texas, Episode 2. In this episode, how the Gablers amassed so much power and what they decided to do with it. By the time the Gablers were featured on 60 Minutes, textbooks had taken over their lives. I think my mother kind of partitioned it a little more than my dad, but my dad was just, I mean, if he was awake, he was thinking about it. That's Mel and Norma's son, Jim Gabler. Although Jim had a hand in starting this whole crusade, he left for college before things really got going. But even from afar, he could see that his parents had become consumed by it. By the 1980s, Norma Gabler had traveled to 42 states and two foreign countries. Everywhere she went, she taught concerned parents how the textbook industry worked and how they could have a say in the process. But by going on TV, the Gablers could reach living rooms across the country all at once without having to hop on a plane. After the 60 Minutes segment aired, the Gablers went on programs like The Phil Donahue Show, Crossfire, and 2020. In 1982, Mel was a guest on the McNeil-Lair Report, hosted by Jim Lair. Tonight, Mr. Gabler is with us from the studios of public station KLRU in Austin. Mr. Gabler, generally, what are you trying to accomplish with your textbook uh, efforts? What's the overall purpose, in other words? 
I would say that we're trying to get textbook adoption out from behind closed doors, out in the open, where the public can see what their money will purchase before the books are bought. Now, in Texas, we have such a process. Mellon Normick Inkler had a genius for dealing with the press. That's professor and author Joan Delfator. As I mentioned last episode, in the 80s and early 90s, she was writing about textbook censorship. That meant she saw the Gablers in action. They could get the word out. They had ways of, and it seemed very folksy by today's standards, but they had ways of publicizing what they were doing. In some respects, the Gablers were a model for um, how to conduct debates compared with some of what's going on today. They never used bad language. They never personally attacked anybody. Uh, Even if you disagreed with what they were saying, they conducted the argument in a far more civil way than similar arguments tend to be conducted today. When I watch archival tape of Norma and Mel, I'm struck by how nice they seem. They were never mean or combative. They didn't go on TV and call textbook publishers radical leftists. They were just trying to get one point across. If you didn't like what was in your child's textbook, you had the power to change it. In 1982, they went on firing line with William F. Buckley. It was a debate-style show. Norma and Mel sat next to Pamela Bonnell, a journalist and librarian who was in opposition to the Gabler's work. There's this moment where Norma is explaining how the textbook approval process works and what their role in it is. And she is so sweet and clear and convincing. The committee itself makes the decision. They have to make the decision on which books will be adopted and which will not. Uh, There is no citizen that has the opportunity. We have never had a vote on a textbook. So actually, I don't know whether we have, what effect we have upon it or not. We're probably given a lot of credit for it, but actually we don't have the vote. So that makes a big difference. But we have a voice. I think that's the nice thing about it. The Gablers tried to get this point across in almost every interview they did. They weren't trying to demonize anyone. It was just that regular citizens should have a say in textbooks. Norma and Mel were there to democratize the textbook approval process. Let people know that they had the power to influence what their kids learned in school. That message, plus the sandwich making and the patterned wallpaper backgrounds, all combined to create this portrait of Mel and Norma as nice, harmless, concerned citizens. But the people who could walk past the cameras and see them face to face got a fuller understanding of who Mel and Norma were and what they were really doing to the textbook industry. People like their son, Jim Gabler. When I talked to Jim, I figured his perspective would mirror that of his parents. And in certain ways, it does. But what fascinated me about Jim was how introspective he was about their legacy. I'm just saying that if you look over look at it over years you realize the the environment has changed on their part it was like we did all of this work and through this process and so if a school board uh wants to ask us for those resources we'll be glad to prepare it you know uh, allow them to have a copy of it that's that's easy enough done and so over time they started having school districts that would say you know, can we get a copy? These books are in there. and we're, we're trying to decide and, and what you have would help. This shift in environment meant that as the Gablers gained power and notoriety, 
they started doing more than just teaching parents how to voice their opinions. People wanted to know what opinions they should be voicing. And the Gablers were happy to oblige. They even used their newfound national platform to publicize those opinions to a wider audience. You could hear it creeping in during Mel's appearance on the McNeil-Lair report. Mm -hmm. In fact, I don't think there's any question about the fact that we have a problem in education. For instance, 40 years ago, the problem then, as far as the students was concerned, such things as not putting waste paper in a waste paper basket, getting out of turn in line or speaking in class. Now what do you have in the classrooms? You have a great amount of uh, violence and abuse, drug problems and so forth, and something has caused that change. And we feel it's because the textbooks have totally abandoned, or almost totally abandoned, the, the uh, basic traditional American values on which our nation was founded. Politicians, educators, even publishers began turning to the Gablers for solutions. And with that, the Gablers went from textbook analysts to textbook advisors. I want to take a minute to recommend a show I think you'll really like. It's one of my all-time favorite podcasts, The Slate Political Gap Fest. I've been listening for years and never miss an episode. Listening to The Slate Political Gap Fest can help you sort through the midterms this fall. Hosts John Dickerson, Emily Bazelon, and David Plotz don't always agree with one another, but they do always deliver thoughtful debate with context and analysis. No one can go on a historical rant better than John Dickerson. And David and Emily are so incisive with their commentary. It's always a worthwhile listen. They navigate our current unstable political terrain, and they do so with the kind of informal, irreverent discussion that's like what journalists share after hours over drinks. I kid you not when I say that these three have inspired me beyond measure, and I look forward to new episodes every Thursday. Subscribe to Slate's Political Gab Fest for the debates, the fireworks, and the cocktail chatter wherever you get your podcasts. When people asked the Gablers what they thought should be in textbooks, they had answers. And those answers were pretty controversial because they were heavily informed by Mel and Norma's specific worldview. Remember, the Gablers were conservative Christians. The entire world, to them, was governed by religion. That meant religion should have a place in public schools. They outlined these ideas in the mailers they sent out. One of them reads, Christianity and the Bible were never intended to be banished from our public schools. In fact, many laws on our statute books require us to propagate in our public schools religion and morality as well as knowledge. Most of the states require daily Bible reading. All this the Supreme Court has completely reversed. The last sentence is in all caps. So what the Gablers saw, and I, as far as I can tell, I have no reason to believe they weren't sincere about this. There are only two uh, points of view. There's what the Bible says, and there's everything else. So to them, it, it was the kind of, if you are not with me, you're against me. So if it says in the Bible that women are to be subject to men, then if someone says, no, women are not to be subject to men, to them, that is a competing religious view because to them, the question of whether women should be subject to men is inherently a religious question. Therefore, whatever you say about it is inherently religious. And to them, the whole world was inherently religious. Refusing to teach biblical principles, to them, 
amounted to promoting an alternative religion, which they called secular humanism. Now, secular humanism is a real thing, but it's not a religion. It's a philosophy that rejects religious beliefs in favor of human reason. But again, everything boils down to religion for the Gablers. It's either theirs or yours. Norma and Mel felt it was important to teach morality in schools. But when they talk about morality, it is specific to their religious values. To them, teaching morality was the solution to rising crime, teen pregnancy rates, and every other American problem you can think of. That resulted in some questionable objections to what was in textbooks. There were objections to a woman carrying a briefcase as she left the home to go to work. And they demanded that that be replaced by a photograph of a woman baking a cake um, because that was a more traditional gender role. They objected to line drawings of breast self-exams for cancer, of testicular self-exams for cancer. And it wasn't enough for textbooks to support Christian values and social norms. They needed to be explicitly pro-Christianity. In her book, Joan talks about one textbook the Gablers reviewed that had a passage about Martin Luther— the 16th century theologian. The passage was about Martin Luther's role in the German Peasants' Revolt of 1524. It said that Martin Luther didn't back the peasants in their revolt. In fact, he told the princes to crush the revolt, which the princes then did. The Gablers felt that passage associated Christianity with violence. Instead, they suggested that the reason Martin Luther didn't back the revolting peasants was because he was against violence and bloodshed. The problem is that's just not true. There's an actual piece of writing from Martin Luther where he says, quote, It is the time of the sword, not the day of peace. Stab, smite, slay whoever can. So historically, Martin Luther was not against violence and bloodshed. He was actually pro-stabbing, smiting, and slaying. Despite the primary evidence available, the Board of Education sided with the Gabler's interpretation. The textbook publisher deleted that passage on Martin Luther and replaced it with a sentence that said, quote, He was opposed to the violence and bloodshed and thought the peasants should obey princes or lords. Now, you would think that's the only time the Gablers would have an objection related to the Protestant historical figure Martin Luther, but you'd be wrong. Another year, there was a textbook that contained an essay comparing Martin Luther to Martin Luther King Jr., the civil rights activist. The Gablers objected to this essay, too. They didn't think that Martin Luther and Martin Luther King Jr. should be put in the same category. The way they saw it, one of the Martin Luthers was religiously dedicated and nonviolent. The other was a communist who advocated violence and disrespect for authority. You can decide which one they thought was which. The Gablers also wanted textbooks to feature more whitewashed versions of American history, like not mentioning that George Washington enslaved African Americans. And they wanted the things they saw as immoral to be taken out of textbooks, like any mention of LGBTQ people, they advocated for little to no mention of sex. As Norma put it in that firing line with William F. Buckley interview, The more sex you teach, the, the, the better they're going to know how to do it. And every year, they would head down to Austin and make these objections known to the state board. Here's Joan again. Uh, the Texas 
um, textbook selection committee would sit up on a dais and there was a podium and a microphone to one side. And the room was divided, it, not by rule, but just um, by custom. The publisher's representatives would sit on one side and the protesters would sit on the other. The objective was to get the textbook committee to recommend to the board that the board should tell the publisher that you can't, we will not buy this book in Texas unless you make the following changes. Typically, publishers would sit quietly in the hearing rooms, taking down notes on the Gabler's objections. But Joan did tell us a story of a time where another conservative protester was objecting to a health textbook. And a representative from the publishing company spoke up. A um, protester was saying that they didn't like it, a health book that showed a picture of a breast self-examination. So it had it didn't show a naked breast. It showed concentric circles. And at the time, the way you were supposed to do a breast self-exam. So the there were quite a few people who were complaining about that. And they said it would encourage the girls to stimulate themselves and to be immodest, that this was a sexually stimulating thing. So the publisher got on his feet, which surprised everyone because they never said anything. And he said, young women typically don't die of anything. But when young women do die of natural causes, breast cancer is the leading cause. What happens if we take this out of the book and somebody dies of breast cancer who didn't need to? And the protester who was at the microphone replied, at least she would die pure. Although that story isn't about Mel and Norma specifically, I think it speaks to the ideology of their movement in a really profound way. Like that protester, to Mel and Norma, the actual information in the textbook wasn't as important as the story that textbook was telling kids about what it means to either be pure or impure, moral or immoral. As far as I could tell, they genuinely believed in what they were saying. They genuinely believed that it didn't matter if, say, Washington did have forced labor camps. The question was, how do we want the children to see George Washington? That was the operative point. How do we want the children to view George Washington? We want to view him as the hero, the founder of our country, the foundation myth. And so we put in the books what will reach that goal. And to them, it was very simple. There were, there were not two sides to this. You decide what you want the children to believe, and then that's what you put in the book, and why is that a problem? There's no one way to tell the story of American history. Textbooks are always going to leave something out. They only have so much space. There's only so much time in a school year. And usually, it's the experts that make that decision. Historians and educators who write the textbooks in the first place. Until Norma and Mel showed up on the scene. Their system of ideological objections to textbook materials did more than just give parents a voice or make sure that textbooks were completely factual. They changed what went into the books for decades to come. There's one story that Dan Quinn told me that really illustrates this point. Back in 1994, Dan was working for a textbook publishing company. 
That year, his company had a health textbook up for adoption. He didn't work on the textbook himself, but he had a friend who did. And she asked him to look over some of the work she was doing for the teacher's edition of the textbook. I recall there was an essay in there about four teachers on what do you do if you have a student in your classroom and you think or you know that they might be gay? Um, You know, how do you address that? And there was information, there was a, a hotline that they might, if they chose, share with the student. Uh, that they could get more information to be supportive, learn something more about themselves, about where they could find help. As a gay man, I was thrilled to death that they had something in there because I would have loved to have that and had that information when I was a teenager. Um, and so naively, as a young editor, I thought, yeah, this looks great. This is good info. Why not? But when the textbook was submitted to the State Board of Education for approval, it received a lot of objections. And they don't sound all that different from conservative talking points today. That textbook then became kind of a lightning rod for criticism from social conservatives. They especially objected to any information on sexual orientation. Even though the vast majority of that information on sexual orientation was in the teacher's edition. But social conservatives attacked that as indoctrination. Um, that the school is now going to be indoctrinating kids into the homosexual lifestyle. And so that became a major battle. They were demanding hundreds of changes to all the textbooks. And these ideological objections ended up having a big effect on the textbook approvals that year. All the criticism of the textbook got so bad um, that eventually the publisher, we had a large all-company meeting at a big movie theater in town. And we were all sitting there, and the president of the company just stood before us and said, we don't support homosexuality. We don't oppose homosexuality. We're just trying to teach health education. And at this point, we're going to withdraw our textbook from consideration here rather than make all of these changes, all of these deletions that uh, we're being called on to make. Well, that was a big deal because they'd obviously spent a lot of money creating that textbook. And so not getting the market share that they were hoping for in Texas meant they lost a lot of money. And my friend was worried she was going to lose her job. She didn't, thank goodness. But it was a lesson for me. You know, you can't be naive if you're going to work for a publisher. The health textbook that Dan had been so excited to review was pulled from consideration in Texas. And unsurprisingly, the textbook that Texas did end up adopting was much closer to the Gabler's ideology. One publisher in particular uh, didn't have information on sexual orientation, they didn't have information on contraception, and they made that a sales pitch. You know, we are the only textbook that doesn't teach kids about contraception, that we focus on abstinence, and we don't teach alternative lifestyles. Well, nobody was teaching alternative lifestyles, of course, but that infuriated all of the publishers, um, but it was successful for that particular publisher in Texas. These decisions had the potential to really affect students. Often, because of the Gabler's objections, the textbooks that were approved for use in Texas glossed over racism and espoused sexist values. That shaped the way kids understood the world. If you didn't fit into the mold that the Gablers or other Christian conservatives thought was right, you were the other. 
your lived experience was less than or even deviant. Dan's story about the health textbook happened around the time when the Gablers had the most influence. But even decades after their peak, their impact lingered in the textbook industry. They had created a market of fear. And in order to play it safe, publishers started to self-censor the books they submitted for approval. Good example, in 2004, publishers submitted new health textbooks again. It was the first adoption since the decade earlier debacle. Um, This time, they self-censored their own books. Gay people had completely disappeared, no contraception. Norma and Mel had a specific story about the world. To them, the world was steeped in Christianity and guided by a specific set of rigid morals. In the wake of the progressive movements of the 60s and 70s, they felt America moving away from their values. They wanted to reintroduce their idea of how the world should be to the next generation. And that idea? It ended up in children's textbooks all over the country. Which is something that their son, Jim, told me he is still grappling with today. So what I see is that if there were other people doing what my parents did that had a different mindset, then that would be more helpful to people calling through that to make a a final decision in that process. So how do you bring in that more diversity? And the problem is, is almost all of us have a constraint because there's a lot of our mindset is shaped by our our philosophy, our faith, uh, our theology, things like that. And that becomes uncertain. And I don't, I think too many people were bothered by uncertainty. And I think we ought to be enamored with uncertainty. That's not to say one of us is right, the other is wrong. The philosophical distinction between Jim and his parents is very elegantly summed up in their differing views of certainty. Jim still identifies as a conservative Christian, and yet he's able to say that we ought to be enamored with uncertainty, which, when he said it, genuinely stunned me. His parents did not feel that way. They were deeply adverse to students learning critical thinking or any sort of lessons that involved introspection. They even protested against journaling assignments. All of this looking inward was a surefire way to lead kids away from God. Any uncertainty was too much uncertainty. There's one more textbook example I want to share that I think shows just how literal this attachment to certainty was. Joan told me about one science textbook that had a section about quantum physics. And it talked about the uncertainty principle, meaning that you cannot predict with perfect certainty the movement of a particular particle in space. All you can do is generate a range of probabilities for where that particle will move next, but you can't pinpoint how a particle in space will move. I barely know what the uncertainty principle is, and I think that's the case for most people who aren't physicists. It's hard to imagine why anyone who isn't a physicist would take issue with this section of a textbook. But for those who fear uncertainty of any kind, even teaching this in a science classroom is too much of a risk. If you teach children that there are no absolutes in math, 
They will think that there are no absolutes in morality and they will go and sell drugs on the street corner. That was the actual quote. Having one entirely agreed upon way of living, one totally accepted story about our past, that might seem comforting, frictionless, but only for a certain kind of person. Without that friction, that questioning, I think we also lose a lot as a society. But in this textbook approval process, people wanted straightforward answers. They wanted certainty. And Mel and Norma Gabler provided that feeling of certainty. They had impeccably prepared objections, well-crafted arguments on TV, and an encyclopedic knowledge of the State Board of Education's textbook approval process. The more powerful Norma and Mel became, the easier it was to believe that they had the right answers. Which is not to say that they had the wrong answers. As Norma said herself, the point was for everyone to have a voice in the textbook adoption process. Even if the result was their personal stranglehold of the textbook industry, in theory, they were pushing for a more democratic system. But not everyone in the Gabler's camp held that same vision. I've never told anybody about, about, about the situation. Gabler's and I, we were philosophically always compatible. About the only thing we ever disagreed with was, was this. They wanted to motivate the mom and pop to the kitchen table. My viewpoint was the bottom 90% don't matter. If you reach the 10% elite, the 90% will follow. Next week on Teaching Texas, the Gabler's protege, Neil Fry, infiltrates the Texas State Board of Education and a liberal opposition mounts. Teaching Texas is a Wonder Media Network production. To get episodes early, make sure to subscribe to WMN Politics Plus on Apple Podcasts. If you can, please rate and review the show or share it with a friend to help our audience grow. Teaching Texas is created by me, Grace Lynch. It's produced by myself and Adesua Agbenile. Our editor is Lindsay Cradawill. Production assistance by Sarah Schleed. Jenny Kaplan is our executive producer. Original theme music by Chelsea Daniel. <laughs>